0: Hey there, I'm Scott Mitchell, the editor of 7am. Welcome to The Weekend Read, a podcast where we feature some of the best long-form journalism from Australia for you to enjoy over the weekend or anytime. Today on the show, we explore how the arts can transform us. Has a more interconnected digital world given us opportunities for cultural connection? Or has Silicon Valley robbed us of something? And what has decades of government policy neglect done to the place of art in our lives? Writer and pianist Anna Goldsworthy's piece takes us on a journey through the human connection, cultural value and power of learning an art form. It's called The Slow Fade of Music Education. After a conversation with 7AM's Ruby Jones, Anna will read her piece. To hear more weekend reads... You can subscribe to The Weekend Read in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hi, Anna, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Ruby. How are you? I'm good. I'm really good. Um, And I'm really looking forward to hearing your piece. When I was having a look through it, it struck me that it's about a lot of things, but there's one thing that really comes through, and that's the value and, I suppose, the joy that you clearly see in in learning and teaching music and you're someone who has been in both of those roles as a teacher and as a student. So I was wondering if you could maybe tell me what it is that you find so transformative about that experience.
2: Yeah, that pedagogical interface is a fascinating one, I think. And my very first book I wrote was about my own learning experience. It was my memoir, Piano Lessons, and it was about my relationship with my teacher, Eleonora Sivan, And the lessons that she imparted, which weren't just the lessons of playing the piano or even just of music, but there are sort of broader life lessons that were somehow communicated through this art form. A whole lot of different types of lessons, you know, ranging from generosity and love to the the capacity to be bored and patient and uh, also sustain failures and, and keep on going. And I just... I feel I learned so much as a person from those lessons that, you know, now when my sons are learning music with no particular intention of becoming professional musicians, I just feel there's so much human value in in passing on not just this extraordinarily rich tradition of of music, but also all the life lessons that come alongside that. And then now, I guess, as a teacher on the opposite side of that transaction, I, I find it equally transformative. There's something to me very, very beautiful about, you know, about the cultural transmission of handing on this extraordinary legacy to a new generation of young people.
1: Mm. And in your piece, I think you're really reflecting on what it is that we lose if we lose the type of arts education that you're, you're thinking of. And I wonder why it is that you decided to write this piece now then? What are the ways in which you think that this is under threat?
2: I think a confluence of a whole bunch of factors. One really clear one is emerging from the pandemic and the crisis of the pandemic in multiple ways, including mental health. And the the sort of many questions of meaning that have emerged from the pandemic, you know, what is the point of, of what we do? What's worth protecting? What can we do differently? To me, this, you know, it's been a tremendous crisis, but as the cliche goes, it's also been an opportunity. But the pandemic is sort of situated in a broader landscape of a kind of weird indifference. We have had a kind of indifference to, to culture and not just an indifference, but I think it's safe to say a sort of active hostility towards arts and culture in this country now for, for some years. And it risks leaving us not just emotionally bankrupt, but also I think on some level morally bankrupt. I think when we lose that contact with with the very best of what our forebears have passed on to us, we're not really equipped with a very solid foundation to to imagine where we go to from here. And that's not an argument in favour of tradition at the expense of innovation, it's more an argument that these things are a, are a spectrum, and our strength as a species is our capacity to remember and is our capacity to learn from each other and also from those who who came before. And to me, that feels utterly necessary. And on top of that, I think for me the arts are are utterly necessary, and they're they're really critical as a, as an agent of connection and an agent of meaning in a society that's increasingly fractured and polarised. Mm. Well, Anna,
1: thank you so much for joining us and I'm really looking forward to hearing your piece. Thank you,
2: Ruby. The slow fade of music education. It could have been almost any evening over the past two years. The children had gone to bed and I was again going to break the habit... But instead, I was stuck to the feed like flypaper, microdosing on dismay, when I chanced upon something different. It was one of those arresting moments online when the symbols suddenly line up, jackpot, and you are surprised by something real. The conductor, Ricardo Mutti was addressing the audience before the first performance by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra in more than 19 months. The world is going in a very tragic way because of lack of culture, he said, as the members of the orchestra sat behind him holding their instruments, many of them in masks. Culture is not entertainment. You are not here tonight because you did not know how to spend your evening. You are here tonight because you need music. We are here to give you emotions, to give you the sound of beauty, of harmony, that sound that the world is forgetting. There have been many reasons lately to cry at the internet, Before the pandemic, I too was a performing musician. And when I looked at that orchestra on that stage, I felt a type of FOMO for a previous life, which I suppose is one definition of nostalgia. But you can also weep from relief that someone could take a stand for culture, that someone could invoke such unfashionable ideas as beauty and harmony. How have we allowed ourselves to forget? The recent UNESCO report, Reshaping Policies for Creativity, Addressing Culture as a Global Public Good, notes that digitalisation presents countless opportunities for the cultural sector. But at its worst, Silicon Valley erodes our collective capacity for attention, the very raw material of art, as well as our judgement as we outsource our taste to the bots. As the report makes clear, it also fundamentally undermines the sector's business models. In the reliable way big tech exacerbates inequality in almost every domain it enters, the streaming model of Spotify pushes more revenue into the hands of those at the very top, the major record labels and superstars, at the expense of all those beneath who fertilise and sustain the ecosystem. At the same time, despite its promise of connectivity, social media seems largely to have done the opposite. Given the opportunity to speak freely with one another it turns out we mostly just want to shout. It is as if, regardless of where we situate ourselves in the political spectrum, we have unthinkingly partaken of a singularity, merging with our devices to the extent that we now think in binary code, and everyone is either a goodie or a baddie. In this denuded post-humanist landscape, there is little room for nuance or for complex thought. And yet we face multiple encroachments on our democracy, The devolution of the fourth estate, the coming of the bots, the polarisation of discourse, rogue agents at home and abroad. And we have a sick planet to care for. We urgently need to recover our minds and our sense of the commons. But how? I have often wondered what would happen if Big Pharma patented a single drug with proven effects that included improvements to working memory, logic processing and literacy, the fostering of empathy the establishment of more robust immune systems, the prevention of self-esteem decline, a reduction in depression and mental illness, and the enhancement of social cohesion, compassion and cooperation. These are only some of the benefits listed in the 2019 report Music Education, a Sound Investment, commissioned by the Philanthropic Tony Foundation and led by the educator and researcher Dr Anita Collins. On top of this, it promised to deliver us to our inner lives. It promised to deliver us to each other. The benefits of music education are so well documented and so incontrovertible that it feels embarrassing even to mention them, except that no one ever seems to listen, so you just have to keep saying it. We have managed to put a screen into almost every human hand. I would like to see a musical instrument in every hand too, and particularly in the hands of our children. To teach them the arts of attention as well as boredom. To allow their minds to be formed according to the principles of harmony and beauty, rather than the dopamine rewards of gaming or the intermittent reinforcements and reliable disappointments of social media. My sister, a psychiatrist, speaks of the metacognition that emerges in her consulting room. A similar therapeutic process emerges when people make music together. As the Music Education Report describes, music promotes the experience of physiological synchronicity with music students experiencing less significant periods of depression or mental illness. In a society facing a debilitating mental health crisis, a program proven to develop empathy and self-regulation seems, well, useful. There are those who object to such arguments, insisting that you should only ever advocate for art for its own sake. This is a reasonable defensive stance in an art sector that has been rebranded as creative industries. And once you become an industry, your central purpose, obviously, is the generation of jobs and growth. Look at us. We're big kids too. We employ more people than mining. In this brave new world... The word creativity is a promiscuous one, mating with entrepreneurialism and innovation to spawn practices as diverse as advertising, footwear manufacture and the wholesale of watches. One morning, as the artist wakes up from anxious dreams, she discovers that in her bed she has been changed into a creative As Shadow Minister for the Arts Tony Burke pointed out at the Reset Conference in Adelaide last November, which was held to address the national crisis in the arts and culture sector, there are circumstances in which the economic argument needs to be made, not least to shore up the status of artists as workers. And, as we discovered over the course of the pandemic, such status cannot be taken for granted. But when the economic argument becomes the only argument, it is tempting to raise the drawbridge and retreat to a position of art for art's sake. And once we are ensconced in our pateresque stronghold, other instrumental benefits start to look suspect too. that day. But I am not persuaded that we need to be wed monogamously to a single argument. There are plenty of good and bad reasons to make art and to teach it to our children. What drew me, and I suspect many of my colleagues, to become a musician was less a single ideal than an alloy of factors, some loftier than others. Neither the generation of GDP nor a burning desire to improve executive function rated very highly, but an appreciation of beauty and harmony did, and the sense of meaning they provided. Alongside the sheer pleasure of making things, an appetite for attention, And a predisposition to monomania. Other things became clearer later music as a means of connection, music as a public good. China has a long tradition of music education and an associated respect for teachers. Over the past two decades, the vast majority of my piano students have been of Chinese background. Several of their parents have been candid about their motivations for piano lessons including equipping their children with habits of work and mind to set them up for medical school. And while I resist the notion of Beethoven as gateway drug to dermatology, the children are still taught. The culture is transmitted, the social benefits pertain, and perhaps there will be a larger audience for harmony and beauty in the future. The problem is that this audience will contain too many dermatologists. It already does. Numerous international studies point to a disproportionate number of theatre makers, writers and musicians hailing from privileged backgrounds, resulting in a lack of representation in our stories and on our stages. But the issue is not only representation within the sector, but the many documented benefits of arts education to the child. Some years ago, I expressed my concerns about music education to a music-loving friend who disagreed vehemently. She pointed out that her children each played several instruments, were members of an orchestra and a concert band, and participated frequently in music theatre. But her children went to one of Melbourne's top private schools. As the gap widens between private and public education, the role of art education in perpetuating structural disadvantage is not always appreciated. When I was a child... A highlight of my public school's calendar was the South Australian Festival of Music Concerts, in which my school choir joined other choirs from around the state for a performance at the Adelaide Festival Theatre. These bedazzling events arrived just in time, as the magic of early childhood was evaporating with Santa and before the adult compensations had begun. There were experiences like nothing else, the startling invisibility of a blacked-out auditorium the constant sense of the audience's presence, like consciousness. The stage itself was a bacchanalia of lighting rigs and strobe effects and electric guitars, and one year, I think, a throbbing Harley Davidson. But the greatest pleasure was that of joining hundreds of other children in song from all around the state, in harmony and, yes, in beauty. It seemed incongruous that so transcendental an experience should have been birthed through our weekly choir rehearsals in the enclosed shelter shed at Walkerville Primary, our parts thumped out for us by Wendy, our blind accompanist, or demonstrated by Mrs Slater's warbly soprano. But in some ways the boredom was as important as the communion. Among other things, learning music is a lesson in patience." Several years later, as a conservatorium student, I worked part-time for the same festival organisation, travelling around Adelaide, from the leafy south to the under-resourced north, to accompany choirs. In the lamentably slow way that an awareness of your own privilege dawns on you, it gradually became clear to me that for some of these children, this would be their only exposure to music for the duration of their education – and that these teachers without exception hard working and committed but also often overwhelmed intimidated and underqualified their only guides according to the executive summary of the longitudinal champions of change study in the united states which tracked 25000 students over 10 years arts education is a powerful tool for equity with High arts participation making a more significant difference to students from low-income backgrounds than for high-income students. In Australia, education organisation The Song Room rolls out programmes to children from low socioeconomic, Indigenous and non-English-speaking backgrounds, along with those at elevated risk of juvenile crime. Documented benefits of these arts-based interventions range from school attendance, 65% improvement, to academic achievement... The equivalent of a one-year gain in literacy, to enhanced social and emotional well-being. In the absence of any national policy, such measures are enacted haphazardly around the country thanks to passionate individuals and private organisations. Music education and schools has fallen between the gaps in our Federation, with some states doing markedly better than others. Queensland has been a national leader in music training since 1971, when it began its instrumental music program in state schools. It now provides tuition for more than 50,000 students in small group lessons in preparation for large ensemble performances. Music has also been a mandatory part of the state's primary curriculum for many years, and the combination of these two factors has fostered much greater equity in music training than elsewhere in Australia. In 2018, Vincent Ciccarello, Managing Director of the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra, observed that his orchestra had been recruiting about three-quarters of its musicians from Queensland. He suspected a problem further down the chain and joined forces with Graeme Kerner, director of the Elder Conservatorium of Music, to lobby the South Australian government for a music education strategy. A 10-year plan was rolled out in 2019 with bipartisan support, centering on primary school music education, with an emphasis on vocal music making as an entry point A central tenet is the support of non-specialist music teachers through the provision of professional development and curriculum guides and resources. Such support is critical when, according to a 2009 national audit, Australian primary school teachers receive an average of less than 17 hours of music training over the course of their teaching qualifications. These are important first steps, but our children deserve a coherent national approach. All the research into the benefits of music points to the need for a continuous, sequential and developmental education. We understand this implicitly in, say, mathematics, but struggle to apply the same principles to music. It is hard to say why. In Finland, they have less trouble with this concept, and the access of every child to a music education is mandated by law beginning in preschool and continuing through primary school for two to four hours each week. Specialised music teachers are highly respected and paid commensurately with fierce competition for education degrees. The musical health of our society requires interventions at multiple entry points. Children, teachers, performers, audiences, amateurs, parents. Conservatoriums play a key role in all of these. As Gillian Merrick wrote in these pages in October last year, if creative arts teaching struggles to survive, then the creative arts will struggle to survive. To damage one is to cripple the other. Many of our tertiary music institutions were in crisis even before the pandemic, situated on the fault line between two cash-starved sectors, tertiary education and the performing arts. The spectacular self detonation of the Australian National University School of Music in 2012 is still spoken of in hushed tones, but it now looks like the canary in the coal mine. Since then, many of our music schools have founded, many others are struggling with their purpose, and now the pandemic, with its disappearance of the international market and stark demonstration of the precarity of the performing arts, has wreaked havoc with enrolments, threatening further erosion of the individual teaching model. And yet, the individual teaching model remains the most effective way to impart musical craft. One of the key recommendations in the Tony Foundation's Music Education report was that children should learn a complex instrument. The report acknowledges that Instruments such as complex strings, wind, brass and percussion take years to master and require consistent effort, but it is this effort that will result in positive cognitive development. Many of us have had our lives transformed by individual music lessons, and I count myself among them. At the age of nine, there was an adult in my life who took me sufficiently seriously to spend time with me in a room each week. Such a relationship is formative, regardless of whether a child is destined to become a musician. The success of the interaction is based on many things, not least the expertise and artistry of the teacher. But, as in a therapeutic relationship, very little can happen outside an atmosphere of care. Above all, the student needs to be seen and heard. Such a format does not graft readily onto a factory farming educational model. And, as became apparent over the pandemic, it does not translate readily onto Zoom. In The Good Story, a collection of correspondence with the psychoanalyst Arabella Kurtz, J.M. C writes that, I cannot resist pointing out that a working through of the student's relationship with the teacher figure cannot take place when the teacher is an image on a screen. Education is dialogical universities that do away with the old model of face-to-face instruction or replace it with canned, recorded teaching are making a profound pedagogical error. During lockdown, my piano lessons morphed into something closer to telehealth sessions in which I kept one eye on my students' stalling musical progress and another on their emotional health. In certain cases, this was critically important, especially for international students confined to tiny rental accommodation. But the profound pedagogical benefits of being in the same room had never been clearer. Music is an art predicated on connection, and that connection is written into the very DNA of its transmission, from hand to hand, from body to body, from master to apprentice. Perhaps this makes the individual lesson an anachronism, Perhaps in a society plagued by feelings of disconnection, it makes it worth protecting. To lose the performing arts in a pandemic may be regarded as a misfortune. To lose them regardless looks like carelessness or something more sinister. Multiple studies reveal that music was the tool that brought the greatest relief and pleasure to those in lockdown. This entirely unsurprising discovery... Coexisted with a striking lack of support for those who provided such an antidote. The UNESCO report notes that 10 million jobs were lost in 2020 in the cultural and creative sectors. An RMIT study titled Understanding Challenges to the Victorian Music Industry During COVID 19 found that 58% of respondents in Victoria were considering leaving the music sector in 2020, the so called mid career pivot that makes a collective exodus sound much more elegant than it actually is. But this is a larger story than the pandemic. Internationally, there has been a significant reduction in arts funding in real terms over the past decade. In Australia, there has been a steadfast decline in public expenditure on arts and culture since the 1960s, and a seismic shift in our government's rhetoric about the importance of the arts since Whitlam, and more recently, Keating. We have not had a federal arts policy since Abbott summarily dismissed one, nor a department for the arts since Scott Morrison thought we were better placed with roads and rail. There has been a clear ideological platform here, as the pandemic starkly revealed, in which universities in the arts were left to contend for themselves. But this has been enabled by a broader cultural indifference, which can be traced directly to exposure. You can carbon date an audience according to whether or not it can sing. We now have a generation of parents who missed out on pianos in their kindergartens. And, with a few notable exceptions, we also have a generation of Australian politicians who see no real purpose in advocating for the arts. At the time of writing, there has been barely any mention of the arts and culture in this election campaign. The arts, presumably, are campaign kryptonite, reeking of elitism to both sides of politics. And in a country in which the only permissible elite is the sporting elite, nobody wants to be carrying that can. Why does this even matter? The UNESCO report notes that the pandemic also shed light on the extent to which creative ecosystems are intrinsically linked to the lives of communities and their members through the resilience, connectedness and well-being they provide. Is there civic value in a theatre? A library? an orchestra? Is there civic value in a conservatorium? In the Reset Conference working paper, Art, Culture and the Foundational Economy, Justin O'Connor, Professor of Cultural Economics at the University of South Australia, suggests that culture is the ultimate goal of the city. He notes that, rather than being a universal truth, it is only our own modern civilization that thinks culture can only happen after the essentials have been met. When Indigenous peoples talk about culture, it is something foundational to their lives. This has been the case historically for most societies and civilizations. In their generous book, Song Spirals, sharing women's wisdom of country through song lines, the authors, the Gaywood group of women, tease out the meanings of five song spirals. These song spirals are not extrinsic to their lives, but fundamental to their understanding of themselves and country. Throughout the book, the Song Spirals are referred to variously as map, university and the essence of people in this land and culture involves everyone. They write that every Yolngu is a singer, a painter. We need to find it within ourself. It is there. A dancer, a songmaker, teacher, peacemaker. Everything has to be about peace and harmony. We have to find it by practising with our heart, our soul, our mind. Somehow, in our settler society, we have come to think of culture as an additional extra, a luxury, or perhaps even a form of decadence. Why are we like this? Part of it, I suspect, is our much-vaunted pragmatism, which has provided fertile ground for the false promises of neoliberalism. In a consumption economy, where do you put music? You can wear the T-shirt, but you still don't own the song. You can't put it on a shelf. You can't park it in your garage. At the same time, we are part of a global culture that celebrates progress with all of its associated veneration of novelty. And we have supplemented this with our own great Australian forgetfulness. If we refuse to accept responsibility for the actions of our forebears, how can we claim ownership of a cultural heritage? It is the colonial issue anywhere. The true terra nullius is our cultural identity, rather than that fiction we invented to justify dispossession. Never mind where the hell are we? Who the hell are we? And indeed, the tradition of Western art music is tainted by human history, by colonialism and nationalism and racism and class oppression and sexism in ways that sometimes makes it hard to live with. And yet it provides me with a deep sense of meaning, and I'm keen to keep it. A reckoning is long overdue, but willful amnesia is not the way to do it. All human culture is tainted by the human appetite for violence, unless there is a culture somewhere of the angels. All culture emerged from the primal swamp of our barbarity. That is the human story, and it is the job of art to make sense of it. Ignoring it is not the same as transcending it. And yet, some cultures have enacted that barbarity on a greater scale. The people the colonial project sought to displace have a more mature relationship with their own heritage. Many have maintained an unbroken relationship with tradition, despite our best efforts to break it. The Gay Wu group of women explain their motivation for writing song spirals. It is so important that our children and our grandchildren learn – As they are growing up, they listen, and then, when they're older, they learn, so they have knowledge that they will use. When they go hunting, they know what to get. So song spirals connect us through the generations, to our knowledge, to those that have come before, and those yet to emerge. Our children are also keepers of the flame. I think of the teachers who have nurtured me, who have goaded and cherished and profoundly challenged me, And I think of the uncomplicated joy I feel when I encounter one of my students out in the world, perhaps as a colleague. It is a privilege to be a link in this chain, which is less about the selfish gene than about the transmission of culture. A few years ago, just before the pandemic, I performed with the Australian Youth Orchestra at the National Music Camp in Adelaide, partaking of the energy and commitment that is an important resource for the middle-aged musician – Afterwards, I joined the tutors in the balcony to listen to the remainder of the concert. As soon as the students finished their gleeful rendition of Strauss's Don Juan, the tutors around me sprang to their feet, cheering, stomping, and crying out. It was an elemental delight, and for a moment I feared the balcony might collapse from the force of it. I do not think it is overstating it to describe it as love for the students, for the music for its transmission. It is a different love to the other ones. In some ways it may be a better one. And I remembered the first time it happened for me. I was in my early twenties, teaching a boy not much younger than I was. After many weeks of lessons, his Ravel Takata suddenly took flight, just like that, with no warning. It was a type of quickening, And to my surprise, the tears just popped out of my eyes. Back then, I hastened to try them.
0: You can read Anna's piece in the latest issue of The Monthly.
1: As a a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read POST, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points with links to full articles from a range of sources. Get the news you need to your inbox every weekday morning with POST. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters.